Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Friends of the Rockneycast, I am so psyched to share with you today's guest, Dr. Michelle Dines, who is originally from Wakan, Iowa. Uh, she currently works in public health in Thailand, but that's not her only identity. She also is originally from Wakan, and when she was about in sixth grade, she moved to Decorah, Iowa, and I graduated from high school with her in 1993. We also discovered that we were in the Wizard of Oz musical together. I don't remember that you were in it, but I didn't really, you know, I was kind of a fringe character. Um, but she has incredibly accomplished in public health. Uh, as I said, she is from Wakan, Iowa. And I also just learned this morning that Dr. Michael Osterholm, which a lot of people of you learned about um, with the COVID pandemic, was not only from Wakan, Iowa, but was a graduate of Luther College. And Michelle is a, a graduate of Luther College as well. Um, and so she graduated the same year I did in 1997. And is really one of our more distinguished Luther College graduates, especially from the class of 1997. She has had an amazing career. Oh, Michelle, it's all true. It really is. Listen to this resume. So she graduates from Luther in 1997. She then gets a master's um, from New Haven State University, which some people call Yale University. So you got to be really smart to be able to get into Yale. Um, she then gets a studies and does some graduate work at the University of Minnesota and culminating in a PhD in nursing in the Graduate College at Emory University, one of the most prestigious universities in the South. Um, she then has followed up with an amazing career in public health. She has worked all over the world um, in 24 different countries and she's currently in Thailand. Um, and so I thought this would be a really fascinating episode of the Cast to share with you because I have been interviewing people uh, that are primarily people that I know, most of whom are from Luther College, um, people like Jason Zaborski, um, who's doing incredible work running an outfitting com company up in Ely, Minnesota. So if you're ever up there, check out Ely Outfitting Company. Mary Elizabeth Williams, a world-class opera singer um, who is based out of Milan, Italy. One of my good friends from Luther College and doing incredible work. She's finding her purpose. Stacy Ort Billingsley, a uh, essentially a theater major at Luther College, and now who is doing international education in Singapore. She's been in the Middle East. She's been in Bangladesh. She's been in Mexico. And so what ties all these people together, including my guest, Michelle Dines, is I'm really interested in this concept of Dharma, which, as many of you know, I did a whole series of episodes on the work of Jay Shetty. Dharma is finding your purpose, your passion calling. In Lutheranism, I think we call that a vocation. What are you put on this purpose on this earth to do? And are you actually achieving that purpose? And most importantly, is there a need uh, for your dharma? Because then it's just kind of a hobby. Like if you think your dharma is singing and like no one buys your stuff, it's good for you, but that's just a hobby. But Michelle, um, I thought, gosh, she is so interesting. And I, I'm friends with her on Facebook and she's based out of Thailand now. So I thought, wow, I know she has this incredibly interesting career in uh, Thailand. 
And she is able to, and obviously public health by definition, there's a huge need for it. Um, and so Michelle, thank you so much for being on this episode. How are you doing? And just describe to me, you're actually inside right now, but how warm is it? Where are you in Thailand? And how hot is it? Like, is it like 95 degrees and muggy? Like what, like, what can you see from your window at your particular house? Well, first, thanks, Rockne, for having me on. I'm super excited to talk to you. It's fun. And um, so, yeah, I'm in uh, Bangkok, Thailand, actually just north of Bangkok. And um, it is late at night, so you can't see anything out my window right now. But if it was daylight, you'd see, you know, lots of jungle, lots of green. Um, and it's probably around 90 degrees right now. It is kind of our hot season, just about ready to start the rainy season. So super muggy and humid, um, but also really good beach weather. So I can't good complain. For, good, good for, what was that? Did so, is someone come into your house? Or some, there's some noise. I don't know if that was on my end or your end. But in any event, yeah, right now it's about 45 overcast and cold. So that's what you're missing in Northeast Iowa. Um, so Michelle, you are in public health. And so... You know, one of the things that I think a lot of young people struggle with is what, what the heck should I do? Um, how am I, where do I find my passion, my purpose? And you have built yourself this, this amazing career starting off in Wacom, Iowa, getting to Decorum Luther College. And now you're really one of the leading public health people. And don't be bashful, you really are. You don't make it to UNICEF for that many years without credentials. So take our listeners through this process of going from small town girl in Decorah, Iowa, to nursing. How did you choose nursing as a career? And what, what led you into yeah. that? Great question. First of all, I think it's really important for folks to hear that a profession is really a journey and an evolution. You know, I, if you were to ask me when I was a senior in high school what I was going to do, um, I never would have been able to describe anything like what I've done. And I and it's really important to understand that you grow as a person, you know, over the years, and that leads you into different directions. And so you can't, you don't need to have it all figured out right away. Now for nursing, I was at Luther and I think it was my first semester. I was, um, I, I was like a biology pre-med major and they had this health professions um, club and a speaker. And one of the professors mentioned something to the to the audience and they said, well, of course, if you wanna really spend time with people and, and really care for people, you probably shouldn't go into medicine. That's really more of a nursing profession. And that really struck a chord with me. You know, I wanted to be the person providing care and being there um, at someone's side, you know, and not just the person who comes in in the moment. And, and so that was, that was, you know, and a moment of clarity in my life. And I switched my major, you know, right off the Yeah, I just switched my Yeah, I did. And then it was a couple years later as a senior at Luther when I realized I wanted to be a midwife. And um, we had an OB course and we were paired with a family and my family just happened to have the one midwife who worked um, in the town in Decorah. And Seeing the way um, she developed that relationship with the, with the patient and her husband and um, was there for them, 
not just at the end when the baby was born, but through the process and in such a caring way also struck a chord with me. And so that um, is, is why I ended up going to Yale, in fact, um, to get my master's degree to be a midwife. That's so, so cool. um, I just yeah. get, I get goosebumps goosebumps thinking about that because as I see it, and I'm sure you know much more about the history of nursing than I do. But correct me if I'm wrong, because I I could be I'm wrong about a lot of things. But it's my understanding that historically, nursing was the more reliable, more trusted, and better results oriented than medicine for a lot yeah. of reasons. But one of which was, is that the techniques and the measures that were used were developed over time and shared primarily from women. I don't think there were too many historically male nurses, although there are today. And they sort of passed along what worked, whereas the doctors were kind of off in their, their, their classrooms theorizing, and they tended to be men at the time. And of course, they didn't know about things like pathogens and bacteria yeah. and what works. Is that correct? So, 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 and I think today, like my sister's a nurse, Jennifer, yeah. my niece is a nurse. And what they shared with me, when you go into the hospital, most of the time, the people doing the hands-on dramatic stuff are not the doctors. Right. And so, I mean, there are probably doctors that can do this, but you know, if, if you're actually in, like someone has a major health event, you should probably yell, are there any nurses in the house as opposed to any <laughs> doctors? Right. Because these are the ones that actually do the hand, they know how to do it with the doctors are kind of like, oh, you know, I'm going to give it. Obviously, yeah. there are some wonderful trauma doctors. I'm not saying that, but. No, of it, course, of course, right? I have plenty of, yeah. But you yeah, get what I'm absolutely. saying. And so if you can maybe get a little bit into that before you get into your whole health journey, that, that nursing was this applied theory and practice, but it was really practice first. And now as it's become more academic, the theory now has come afterwards, whereas medicine was kind of the reverse, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, and I think for um, one of my early nursing courses um, was about kind of the historical aspect of nursing as a profession. And, um, you know, Florence Nightingale was um, renowned for keeping um, records of patient care and um, different strategies for reducing um, passing of um you know, disease from person to person. So I, nursing is, um, doesn't usually get the amount of respect, you know, that I think it should, but it really has been at the forefront of a lot of major advances. And, and when you look, you know, even in the public health world, the workforce in public health, you know, across the globe is um, nurses. And without nurses, um, it would collapse essentially. Well, and it's interesting too, and I think to some degree in terms of public health outcomes, um, you know, they talk about specialists. Of course, we need to have super good specialists, but they've also done a lot of research, like for example, on medical doctors. The general practicer, practitioners over time, even though they don't have the specialized knowledge because they're looking at the whole picture and they are more hands-on in patient care, they can get fantastic outcomes. I'm sure the same thing is true with nursing. Um, and so I love that concept of practicality, but then what I love about your, your journey to Yale is, you know, oftentimes you hear the, um, the, the advice from, for, uh, you know, high school graduates, shoot for the stars. Yeah. You can be anything you want. Well, you make the decision to apply to one of the most prestigious institutions in the United States and you got in. But 
Take me through that process. Was there someone who encouraged you that said, hey, Michelle, I think you, you got what it takes to get into Yale. And then two, you actually applied. So, so, so take our audience through that process. Sure. You know, this was in like 96, 97, you know, when I was thinking about graduate school. And so this was the, these were the early years of the internet, honestly. And mm -hmm. so there were, there were some websites for graduate schools and um, that's kind of how I initially started looking into options. And for some reason, the, the program at Yale really caught my attention. It was really well ranked, um, had a really good reputation um, for providing good clinical sites, which you know really turned out to be true. Um, in my own experience in the program. And then their graduates um, were not, you know, tr traditional um, students coming in um, with a lack of experience. These, I had people with PhDs already in my midwifery master's program, people who had done Peace Corps, you know, from all different kind of walks of life. And that really contributed to the strength of uh, the program and the experience of it. So there was, I'm not sure I can identify what it was that led me there. Um, it certainly wasn't someone recommending I go on to graduate school, but it can connected with me that this is the type of work that's meaningful, that can support women and families. Um, in a way that um, you don't often get the opportunity to do, you know, at that level, especially during times of in, um, real intensity in life, and whether that's pregnancy or the loss of a baby or the birth of a child, um, that I just knew it was the right thing at that moment in, in, in time. And so I'm all about internal motivation. <laughs> and I, I, I've never needed external um, cues, you know, to, to find my path. And so I really just knew that was the program. It was the only program I applied to. And I, I just sensed it would work out. That is, that is so cool. I mean, to basically yeah. believe in yourself and follow up on your sort of your passion and to get in. Um, another one, though, that uh, I like with, with passion, a lot of people talk about finding their passion. Yeah. Well, a, a guest of mine, Joe Blair, had reminded me that the Latin origin of passion is passionum, which means to suffer. Um, wow. And so you found your way into here, but I'm sure it was maybe overwhelming once you got in with, with some of the top people in the world. But the people that were there had the clinical experience to, to be able to lead you on your way. Did you find that to be true? Most of the people that actually taught had a significant amount of clinical experience before they got into the Yale program as, as teachers? Oh yeah, um, decades of experience, both um, clinically and teaching. Um, I, I still have, a lot of those professors are now dear friends um, that I've kept in touch with over the years. And um, we still try to meet up at the, the annual um, American College of Nurse Midwives meeting, which is the big professional um, meeting every year. So, you know, when you go through an intense experience like graduate school and an intense profession like being a midwife, um, you make connections to people and, and it's uh, more meaningful than the average connection and relationship. And, um, you know, I anticipate 
that identity I have as a midwife, I'll always have that, you know, even though I've moved into public health, it's still there. It, it, there's a connection I make with people in all the countries I've worked in. When I say, oh, I'm a midwife, as you know, when I introduce myself, that is, it just sparks, you know, joy in people because they connect with that. That is universal around the globe. Being and, a midwife, and, being there, you know. And, and, you know, you think of, you know, obviously any of us who are parents, and you know, obviously men have never given birth. Um, but we've gone through that process if you have a child. And you, know, you think of those medical care, you know, sometimes I'm aware, sometimes that's my day job. Sometimes I get kind of stressed out, but I'm like, yeah. holy cow. Like some days that I'm really stressed out, I'm like, I remember how stressful my daughter's delivery was. And then we had this just awesome OBGYN that like came to the rescue with like forceps and it kind of looked yeah. medieval. I'm like, oh my God, is it like going to crush her head or something? But she came in, she had her toolkit and she just yanked my daughter out. And I was like, oh my God, you saved my wife and my daughter. And I was like, so much gratitude. And I think of like midwife, you know, what a calling. And, you know, what I love about it too, is just think of all the women who have died in mm -hmm. childbirth. I mean, how perilous the act of giving birth is. And then to have those trusted midwives. And what I love is that the midwife term itself has persisted. And the yeah. concept of a nurse has persisted, um, which is interesting because it kind of seems anachronistic. And I wonder whether you could comment a little bit on that nomenclature, Actually, because I'm sure a lot yeah, of people no, like midwives. You know. Yeah, you're misinterpreting. Midwife yeah. is um, means with women. Yeah. So it's nothing to do with being a wife or kind of that yeah. connotation, yeah. but it, it literally means with women. I think it's a German term. Um, okay. So so that makes sense that it's yeah. persistent, that this is someone who can be called and relied upon, you know, in those moments of need and support and and you know that persistence makes it that much more special, I think, um, and why people feel so strongly within the profession, you know. And you really under you hear that someone is a midwife, and and you automatically understand them and understand, you know, the core of who they are. So that's I don't think that's true in all professions, but I feel that, and I feel really lucky, you know, to have that in my life. That's so cool. So yeah. you graduate from Yale University in one of the yes. top programs in the country. Take our listeners through your next step in that journey, because you're right. You just don't end up. I think a lot of times for young people, it's kind of easy to forget that you don't start off like, I mean, maybe some people start off in Thailand with a really cool job, but, but it's, a, it's a process. Right. So you yeah. go to Yale and you graduated from New Haven State. No, I'm just kidding. Yale, one of the best places in the world. And then where do you, do you work? At some point you get up to a PhD in Emory University. So take our listeners through that process okay. of your professional development to Yale. And then we'll get to Thailand, which I think is gonna be really interesting. Yeah, um, so from Yale, I worked for a couple of years and then we moved back to the Midwest. I worked at Mayo um, on the, in their midwifery practice. Um, and that, I, I think we were in Rochester for seven years. And during that time, I worked full-time as a, as a midwife, um, delivered, you know, hundreds and hundreds of babies, 
um, supported lots and lots of women and their families. Uh, I, I did a couple other things, um, started a group prenatal care program and, and developed um, one that was particular to the needs of refugee women. Um, I also started my master's in public health while I was working full time because I started sensing that I needed, I needed to move on um, from that world. Um, you know, I think um, some people get into a comfort zone and just stay there and that works for them. And for me, I just needed, I needed things to keep evolving. And um, I was, you know, felt that intuition that I needed to move on. Um, not necessarily away from being a midwife, but away from the clinical role. Yeah. Um, you know, you see, you know, we had students all the time coming to us and getting experience. And I was like, oh, there's all of these midwifery students. They, you know, there's many midwives to take positions. I need to do something that I need to keep moving in the direction of doing work that there are fewer and fewer people able to do. So I think yeah. that was part of it is, is that evolution for me. So I started doing global um, work on maternal mortality and neonatal mortality. And, um, you, you know, early on was volunteering to do that and then realized it's really what I wanted to do um, was to really jump in um, full on to public health. And so that's what brought me to Emory uh, to the PhD program. There was um, uh, one of my favorite people, um, Lynn Sibley, who um, uh, it was a midwife, but also an anthropologist and did, has done really great work on maternal mortality and community-based maternal newborn health. And so I, um, uh, I joined her, she was my advisor, and I worked with a couple other people, anthropologists, global health um, demographers, uh, philosopher. I had a great committee <laughs> and, and just did a really interesting project um, for my dissertation on um, trust and teamwork among community health workers in Ethiopia and how that impacted um, kind of collaboration in maternal newborn health services. So that was my dissertation. I, I spent about a year in Ethiopia over the four-year PhD program, collecting data and um, yeah, just getting into the weeds on, on um, both qualitative and quantitative research, which I'm a big nerd, so that really fit my personality. So, um, yeah, but I, you know, I was focused. I was like, four years is the minimum time it takes to do this. I'm going to do it in four years and then move on to do the work. And um, that's ultimately what I did. And that's what brought me to uh, CDC, which is across the street from Emory, actually, literally. So. And so that's interesting. And, and yeah. I think I mentioned this a little bit earlier, but, you know, Michael Osterholm, is from Wakan, Iowa, and is one of the top infectious disease experts in the world. And I don't know whether, I think he is with CDC, or I'm not sure whether he's with CDC, that's the Center for Disease Control, um, but he is one of the top people. And he also went to Luther College. Mm -hmm. And although I graduated with you from high school in 1993, uh, you were originally from Wakan, Iowa. And yeah. of course you also graduated from Luther College. So I had no idea that like Wakan is like the CDC powerhouse. So you know how like, well, you know how like, you know, in football, they always look to Florida for all the, in Alabama for all these football recruits. 
the CDC, go to Wakan and Luther College for your, for your top talent. Um, but so you get, you get to um, Atlanta and you're in this yeah. different role. And at that point, are you kind of feeling like, wow, I think I, you know, I, I made some good career choices before, but I think this is really what I want to do with the rest of my career. Um, is, that, is that kind of what, what you thought or take us through the, the, that next step um, of your professional journey? Yeah, I like I, I mentioned earlier, I think I had good intuition about what was the right next step. And at each stage, what I was doing was the right thing. And and definitely the PhD was the right thing. I, I never wanted to be in a situation in public health of writing a grant and needing someone else's name on it to get it funded because I didn't have the credential. Um, so me having um, not just the credential of PhD, but also the actual skills um, to do really solid, robust research um, was really important to me uh, to, to really be able to fulfill that role fully um, in whatever circumstance. So it was the right thing. Um, it felt just right with the combination of mentors I had at Emory and the connections with CDC. And um, it was through that process that I learned about kind of what my next step was going to be, which was um, the EIS program, which stands for Epidemic Intelligence Service. Um, that is uh, a fellowship uh, at <laughs> CDC. And um, if you ever hear CNN talking about the disease detectives from CDC getting sent out for Ebola or other things, um, that's what EIS what is. So I did that fellowship and then just uh, progressed into a normal position um, at CDC. And that um, really was the start of my public health career. Um, wow. Yeah. And, and I think it's interesting, boy, there's something weird going on with my audio, but we'll, we'll see how it goes. But um, so I love what you said about this concept of intuition, uh, because the other person that uh, Jay Shetty, and if you ever get the chance to read that book, it's really good. It's popular, but you know, popular books can be good too. Like Deepak Chopra, he's really popular. He's awesome. But he talks about this concept, he quotes, you know, he talks about Dharma, but then he quotes yeah. Joseph Campbell, um, yeah. who inspired, you know, George Lucas and, and Skywalker, but he, he has a very specific quote with Joseph, Joseph Campbell, and Joseph Campbell said, follow your bliss. Exactly, yeah. And I, it really resonated with me because, um, you know, and I think like Blue Man Group, I think at some point, you know, who the heck would think that like it'd be good to paint yourself blue and bang on drums? But they said the same thing, follow your bliss. And I think so often in education, especially parents who are nervous about a job for, for people, they're saying, you know, be practical. Don't, don't go off and follow your dreams. Be practical. Right. I, right. Found that, I found that the mistakes that I've made in my life are ones where I don't follow my bliss. And the ones where I do, it feels like it shouldn't be right, that we should, um, that it will lead us astray. But I think if you, if you really do follow like what your gut tells you you want to do, it ends up being right. And in your particular case, it's led to this marvelous career that's led you all over the world, including now where you're at in Thailand, which I think yeah. a lot of people, if you were an undergraduate, you would say like, I work in Thailand. And they'd I want to do that. 
you know, you're like, well, hey, you got to spend, you know, 20 plus years of hard right. work and different steps along the way, but you followed your bliss to this incredible position. So what I want you to do is similar a little bit to what I talked about with Stacy and Kevin, um, although your job with the CDC, big time job where you're traveling all over the world, so you're doing the travel, which a lot of times people want associated with their job, but, but the disease hotspots. But then you have an opportunity to shift gears and have a permanent position or at least a longer term position in Thailand. Take our audience through that process of when this opportunity rose up, the discussions you had with your kids, because you also have a very interesting family as well. And that, that process to say, we're going to go from Atlanta to Bangkok or north of Bangkok, Thailand. What, what was that process like? Yeah, so one, one really positive thing about the CDC is people have um, the ability to switch positions within the agency fairly regularly, you know, as often as maybe every two to four years, depending on, you know, what people want. And some people want that single position that they stay in for their career and other people move around topically, uh, geographically. And so I had been um, at CDC for probably six years at the point where I was applying for this position, which is a seconded position to UNICEF, um, uh, East Asia Pacific region. And, um, you know, one thing about being a global health person stationed in one location like Atlanta is that I was constantly traveling, constantly jet lagged, always missing family events, you know, experiences. And so being stationed in a country closer to where the work is being done actually provides a, a better quality of life, to be honest, um, because I spend a lot less time on airplanes, a lot less time um, being sleepy from being jet lagged. And so this opportunity came up. I, I applied for a few different opportunities, um, South Africa, Uganda, um, Thailand, among others. And um, this position was um, meant for a social scientist, which was perfect for me. So I, it was the right fit with the right skills in a, a part of the world that I hadn't had as much experience working in. I've done a lot of work in Sub-Saharan Africa, um, in the Middle East, um, and among other um, parts, but Southeast Asia really wasn't um, a place I was traveling to very often. And so it was also an opportunity to expand into a new area. And my focus um, right now is on immunization demand, which you can imagine is a pretty um, big topic, especially um, given COVID-19. And so the timing of that was uh, interesting. I arrived, I think, January 1 of 2020. And of course, um, COVID hit China in um, December uh, 2019. So, and then hit um, Thailand soon thereafter, and then was in our region. So a lot of my work, you know, focused on how do we protect people from COVID-19. And then once the vaccines were available, how do we increase demand, generate demand for COVID-19 vaccination? Um, how do you increase the confidence, you know, among people to take the vaccine? 
Um, what are the social behavioral drivers for choosing vaccination over not? Um, it's been kind of a whirlwind um, and pretty intensive work for the last, last couple of years. But um, yeah, basically my arrival in Thailand coincided um, with the start of the pandemic, which has uh, been really interesting, um, but uh, challenging. Um, but I think for someone with my personality, you know, that's the right type of environment to be in. So it's been good. And so with your family, talk a little bit about the decision with your family. And was there some reluctance? I mean, I'm sure they were excited. Yeah. But they then get there. And, um, you know, then the question is, is, is are, how are people going to do this? So I'm sure there was kind of a buildup where people were excited. Like, we're going to live in Thailand. And then you get yeah. there and Thailand is really cool. Are, are two years later, you're thinking like, oh, my gosh. Because when we prepped for this interview, I actually Facebook messengered you and you were like walking in the jungle or something. I'm like, how yeah. cool is that? And when I interviewed uh, Stacy and Kevin, there was like, you know, birds flying around. I mean, it, like it really was that good. So how, how difficult was it with the family? And now yeah. that you're there, are you kind of, you know, I'm, I'm also trying to have a gratitude practice where I sort of give thanks for the stuff that's going well. But are you able to contemporaneously recognize while you're experiencing like, wow, this is a pretty cool opportunity. So maybe you can talk about both things, the, the lead up with your yeah. family for this transition. And then the afterwards, I mean, the challenges that you've had in, in adapting to a new country. So yeah, that's a great question. Travis, my husband, um, and I also, were- He's a decor guy too. I got to give him a shout out. He and his is. dad was, his dad was, was Dr. Big... Yeah, Andy went to Luther and his dad was Dr. Terry Dines. Was a really his good. Oh, it's grand. Oh, it's grand. Shows how old we yes. are. Getting ancient, Michelle. We're gonna like. We're gonna be like eighty-five and have adventures and like in two seconds. I know. Okay, his I grandpa know. was. His grandpa was. Yes. Dies? Oh my god. Okay. That's right. So Terry had like the best sledding hill, which I can't believe they let us sled there. But you know, that, <laughs> damn lawyers. That my that day job as a lawyer. But anyway, I'm sorry to interrupt you. But I wanted to give a shout out to Dr. Terry Dines, your husband's doctor. But talk about your husband's his transition as well, as well as your yeah. And I'm sorry I interrupted you. That's a terrible No, no that. problem. Yeah, Travis um, was really excited about the opportunity to move abroad. Um, and our three kids um, were on it, just to be honest, tough ages to mm -hmm. think about moving. Um, they were all in high school. Um, at the time, they would have been 15, 16, and 17. And so um, we had some really tough decisions about um, who was going to come and who was going to stay. And um, in the end, uh, my our oldest stayed to finish his senior year um, in Atlanta. And then our younger two came um, to finish out uh, two years of high school for my daughter and then three years of high school for my youngest. And it, it was rough to begin with. It was rough for them to say goodbye to their friends and have, have to learn a completely new system um, of school here. They, but, um, you know, two years later, the benefits, you know, I think we would, we could get them all to admit to, which, um, the school is amazing. Uh, it's an international school representing um, over 60 different countries around the world. 
um, the type of education they're getting, they just wouldn't have had access to, honestly, um, in, a, in the US. Um, and they now will have a cohort of um, friends who are from around the world. And you know, I think that will really change their lives um, moving forward, even though you know, I, I anticipate they'll all be going to college in the US. I think they'll probably have that global perspective in life that a lot of kids don't, you know, gain until much later um, in, in adulthood. Yeah. And you're probably, your kids are probably um, attending uh, the same type of international school. I think Stacy and Kevin are actually teaching in one of those international schools. So, oh, yeah. Did you know Stacy and, and Luther? Not really. No. You guys, you guys should probably connect because yeah. um, because they they've been based on the international teacher circuit, and I don't know. They love. It's my understanding. Like when I did the interview, they love it's Singapore. Amazing. They yeah. love it. And so if you're ever there, I mean, you know, Luther people, we can we can always connect. You can totally come yeah, and show you guys a good time. But my sense was they love it, but it was yeah. almost so structured and so easy. Not easy. It's very challenging the job, but. I think they were also kind of looking for, you know, like they, they were in Bangladesh before, which was a little bit more, you know, there's more challenges yeah. there. Um, but so I think it was on that sort of similar track uh, that they were at. And I think for your kids to have that kind of opportunity is just incredible. Yeah. I assume it's in English, but do you, have you had to learn any Thai language? You know, if I were there, I'd be like, how much is the beer? But you're so wholesome. You probably, you probably don't know how to say that. But I, you know, like when I'm in a country, I have to learn that. But have you learned a little bit of language? And I wonder if you could share with some of our audience some cultural things that you've learned in Thailand, um, maybe some yeah, of the language, sure. some of the religious practices, those sorts of things. Yeah. So Thailand is a predominantly Buddhist country. So Buddhist philosophy. And um, I think as a result of that, what people will be probably most struck by in Thailand is this, um, just the way they engage with each other interpersonally. Um, you would never raise your voice at someone, you would never become angry. Um, it's all about respect. And um, so that is interesting because as Americans, we tend to be more aggressive um, you know, making sure our opinions heard and, um, you know, it's, uh, it's been a really good practice for me to be, to bring it down, you know, to bring my own kind of way of, um, communicating down to that level of listening more, talking less, always being respectful. And so you'll, you hear people talk about Thai smile, you know, everyone's smiling, there's a lot of reference to being healthy and happy in Thailand. Um, that's really cultural. So even the uh, one of our favorite bike lanes that goes um, 25k around the airport um, is called the the happy healthy bike lane. So you see references to being happy, you know, almost everywhere. It's ubiquitous, and um, that really is integrated into the culture, into the way they treat each other. Um, they rely a lot on tourism in Thailand, and so um, that kind of welcoming spirit is really important. Um, it's a really safe place to be, and that that really goes back to the Buddhist tradition. You know, 
um, if if you lose something, it's um, you don't have to think it's lost forever because if someone finds it, they'll likely um, find you to give it back. So, you know, I it's really a beautiful, physically beautiful, but also kind of spiritually beautiful place to be, um, to be surrounded by that type of an environment. Um, you you talked about um, being having kind of that being grateful, you know, for what you have, and certainly in the pandemic. Um, to be locked, not locked in, but, you know, as we all were um, somewhat locked into our location, this was the most amazing place to be. Um, Thailand is known for, you know, um, its beaches and, and mountains in Chiang Mai, and um, uh, we, we do scuba diving, and um, just, it's really, I, I, I would have a hard time wanting to leave Thailand um, for any reason other than, you know, reaching a maximum time I can be here, you know, with the U.S. government, which is six years. But um, other than that, you know, it's really a wonderful place to be. And, um, you know, I just find that I, I can be a calmer version of myself here. And um, it's really nice to be reminded that, you know, that aggressive American style isn't such a healthy way of being all the time. You know, I remember when I spent eight weeks in Ecuador after my senior year of Luther, and I arrived back in the airport, and I, I just remember thinking I had total reverse culture shock. Everyone seems so pissed off all the time. Everyone seems so angry. And I don't really, I have not really studied much Buddhism, but one person that I've come across was is the recently deceased Buddhist, I think Thich Nhat Hanh, I think my counselor had referenced him. I don't know if you remember, familiar with the work of, I think it's Thich Nhat Hanh. Um, but he you know, talks about this concept of acceptance. And, you know, and I think there are so many Buddhist principles that, um, you know, I've just come across his work and I've studied the work of Stoicism, you know, which comes out of the Roman tradition. Um, and it really is this just amazing cultural tradition. And I'm wondering whether you could share one or two maybe um, Buddhist scholars or anything like that? Or have you had an opportunity to learn about any of the top people there? And if not, maybe just one culture, you talk about the, the cultural aspect of, of Thailand, but what, what would be maybe one thing that just, you talk about just they're so nice, but what's one part of the culture that really resonates with you? And ha has there been a scholar or, or a book or something about Thailand that you may be able to share with our listeners? Yeah, I, I don't have a specific book or scholar, but um, something that I can share that um, is really uh, an important part of the culture is just the greeting. Um, and, and the greeting, Sawadika, um, is a, a greeting of respect that you give almost to everyone you would come across or pass. And, um, you know, it's, um, you know, you talk about in the US passing people on the street and, and people will look down or, you know, mumble something, but Sawadika and, and like the, the way they will bow to each other is out of respect and um, appreciation mm -hmm. from one human to another. And I think that humanity in that simple gesture is um, really, eye-opening and, and critical kind of for, you know, maintaining your 
your soul and, and just re being reminded that um, we're all human beings, no matter what job we have or how much money we make in a year, um, we're all part of humanity and are there to support each other. And, you know, ultimately that's, that's the type of work I want to do is, um, you know, acknowledging everyone's worth in the world and, and everyone's right to, um, to health, you know, and uh, well-being. So, you know, the other one that I'm sure you, well, you probably know her, Lori Santos. She's a positive psychologist from Yale University, but she has this mm. good podcast called the Hop Happiness Lab. Oh maybe, yeah, I love that. Is that a good, is that a good one? But, so but good. All this, this, this whole concept of sort of the mind, body, spirit connection, um, you know, so, so, so for so long, everyone kind of knew about the placebo effect of like, if you believe in something that can help out, but there really yeah. is something neurologically that is emanated when you positively emit motions. I just think like that is such a profound takeaway. If our culture could just adopt simple yeah. respect for one another yeah, and the ability to listen and even just the physical act of bowing, it's just mm -hmm. a sign of respect that is ingrained in the culture. And you're right, like the American culture has become so toxic. Like, yeah. like you know, if we could just all admit, maybe we don't know everything. And maybe if we showed our enemies the slightest amount of respect, as opposed to presuming they're all acting, they're all out to get us. It seems so simple, but so missing in our culture. So I think that is really profound. Yeah. Um, so we are coming up on the end of our, our hour here. Because we always keep trying to keep our interviews under an hour. And you've been yes. gracious enough to share your time. You've had an eight hours full of meetings. So by the way, you've done a great job so far. Um, I'm wondering whether you could share, you, you don't have a book from Thailand, but you do have a couple book recommendations that have influenced yeah. your life and then a self-care strategy. Cause in my midlife, I'm all about new self-care strategies. So I would try to Absolutely. ask about that. So a book and a self-care strategy, and then we'll, you know, our listeners are just going to have to follow your work on another podcast because we're coming up on our hour. So. No problem. So one book, should I stick with one? Yeah. Well, you can do two. What the heck? It's okay. my podcast, so I can do whatever the hell I want. Listen well, away if of, you want. Okay, so one of the, the books I have, I haven't read this one in a really long time, but I wanted to share it just because it was something I read at a time when public, the idea of being a clinician versus a public health professional, you know, that transition in my life, it was um, timely to that. So um, that book is Mountains Beyond Mountains by... Tracy Kidder. Um, so that is about the work, the no, it's a nonfiction um, book about the work of Dr. Paul Farmer in Haiti. Oh, yeah. he just um, passed away too, did he? He did, yeah. So that was another reason I wanted to bring this one up. Um, it really is such a well-written book, but, and um, very focused on that concept of humanity and what are our rights, you know, as members of humankind? Do we have a right to health, a right to live freely? And, and if we believe that that's true, then how do we take it upon ourselves to, to do the work to make sure that that's true for everyone? And so I think that was, because Dr. Paul Farmer was a clinician that, um, you know, kind of refocused into public health. And I, and I see myself, in that way, of course, not 
um, at the same level of the work he did, but um, that idea of, okay, I'm not, I'm no longer hand-to-hand -hand delivering babies, but I can make um, birth safer through research, through um, evaluation of programs for women around the world, not, not just influencing that that one-on-one -on -one, um, clinical experience. So for me, that was really influential, that book, in terms of showing that connection between clinical and public health work. So that, that's one. Um, the second book, um, it's called The Red Tent by Anita Diamant. Have you read this? I haven't. Um, oh, I've heard awesome. about it, though. Is it really good? Okay. Oh, it's so good. So this is um, a historic kind of a I, this, I'm not even sure how, how to describe it, but it's a kind of a historical novel. I first read this book when it came out uh, two decades ago, and then I just reread it in February. And so the first time I read it was before becoming a mother. And, mm. and it might have been, let's see, before I became a midwife or it was right around that time. And so rereading it has been so great. This is, um, in a sense, retelling of some stories from the Bible, but from the perspective of women. And that, yeah, and so it's a real, really interesting book. You don't need to be a religious person for this book to matter to you. Um, the Red Tent, um, uh, historically, was a place that women went um, during uh, certain times of the month when they shouldn't be around men. And it became this kind of empowering, um, this opportunity for empowering women and young girls um, in a really patriarchal society and how that, um, those moments together really enriched their lives and, and um, gave them power, you know, yeah. to live. And it's so touching as a mother to read this book for a second time. Um, I, I'm not sure how it's gonna, how men would read this book and how they would connect with it, but I think I would really recommend it to anyone who hasn't read it. It, like I said, like it was even better for me the second time around. Well, you know, I think with reproductive health, it is such yep. a huge topic. It rivals, you know, religion, if not even greater amounts of intensity surrounding your reproductive health, the decision to have yep, a child, the decision to end a pregnancy, all the risk associated with that. And of course, that could be a whole other class that could be, we could, you know, have that whole discussion on that. But I always think about setting aside that very important moral question, just this question of all the different women throughout history that have gone through mm -hmm. this birthing process, how fearful they were, um, how, you know, giving birth to a life, the, the responsibilities, the, the, mm -hmm. the associated with that, and then the way that they coped, because, you know, um, and, you know, here, well, I guess we'll have to engage in some gender-based assumptions, but men, we, by definition, don't have children, and yeah. you, 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 we don't, we can't do that, but, but can we get levels of empathy in which we understand that process more, and I think books like this can do that, and I think of all the women, like, you know, I, I think a lot of men don't, and you would know this, don't realize, they, they may kind of realize, but they don't really realize how dangerous 
the act of giving birth and even a healthy pregnancy is for women. That nearly all a, cases, yeah. Yeah, and that's, and I just want, would love to take this opportunity to say that's especially true for African-American women in the U.S. Mm-hmm. You know, there are significant disparities in outcomes, maternal health and newborn outcomes um, by, um, uh by race and by socioeconomic status. I think that's so important for us to come to terms with, you know, as, uh, as a country. Mm-hmm. Um, the rates of mortality in this country rival of our poorest citizens rival the rates in um, developing countries. And um, yeah, I think, you know, that acknowledgement of what women go through and and also at the beginning of pregnancy when pregnancy may or may not have been planned and you know how do you deal with that these are complicated situations that historically have been up to women to deal with and and you know and And um and if we could approach these topics in a way in which your friends and your your acquaintances in thailand approach it with sort of prayerful prayerful reverence of respect and honor and listening rather than just sort of blabbering out about, you know, instantly what is the right solution right. here. I think we'd, we'd really advance on that because um, it is a complicated question and I know people mm-hmm. feel strongly about it, but, but, but I, what I love about what you're doing is, is that you're actually advancing the ball. You're actually, you're not just talking about it. You're just not a talking head. You're advancing, you're trying to do something about it. And regardless of whether people fall on a lot of these complicated issues, I always like people that are in the arena getting things done and improving it yeah. and making sure yeah. that we have as many healthy babies as we possibly can. And how, how wonderful is that? Um, so as I indicated somewhere about halfway through, it also is probably really stressful um, when you were delivering these babies. And I'm sure you had a lot of fear, and probably a little anxiety about, you know, such an awesome responsibility. So, but you've progressed through this career with, with great acclaim. So where were some of your self-care strategies that you did to deal with the stress, maybe some of the anxiety that you may have felt about just the pressure yeah. you were under? Because that's a very high pressure position. You just don't sit around and relax when you're going through childbirth the way you're assisting another mother having a healthy. What were some self-care strategies you did to, to address that? Yeah, probably my my absolute favorite self-care strategy is exercise but social social exercise and so that what I mean I've always had running buddies and they're they've almost always been women um and it's just an opportunity to both get exercise which is really really good for stress relief um but also kind of that social time because I'm super busy as as many people are and um, when I have meetings and work in the daytime and in the evening time, and I'm on trips for work all the time. And so I don't get a lot of um, downtime to be with friends. And I think using exercise as, as an avenue to also gain kind of that social time that's so critical for just our general well-being, I think is really important. So that's, that's one of my absolute favorite things is exercising. Like I've always had, I have a Friday running group, a Saturday walking group, uh, you know, like every, always something with people that mean a lot to me and spending, spending time with them. 
um, that's what that's, matters. That is huge because you had mentioned social. Don't they say that we get like, they call it oxytocin. It's like the yeah. social bonding hormone that's that right. we get. And I'll throw out a podcast recommendation on if you've heard of it. It's called the Huberman Lab. Have you ever heard of that one? No. It is so awesome. It is by Andrew Huberman. And he's super smart. He went to Stanford and he teaches at Stanford University in the neurology department. And he talked about, he had a whole episode on the benefits of play for adults. Oh, yeah. And, and it was just really interesting getting into that particular topic. But yeah, it's yeah. public health. You should totally check it out. Huberman Lab, Andrew Huberman, it's really good. And nice. one final footnote, you had mentioned Haiti, Mount Beyond's Mountain. I have to ask, have you talked to Josh White at all about what he's done in Haiti? I hope you have. And Dr. Josh White, for our audience, was also a Decorah High School grad. In Decorah, there's some heavy hitters in Decorah, I'm telling you. And also um, a Luther grad. And, and a Luther grad. So it's kind of the double yeah. whammy. I don't know if he's oh. from Wakan. Is he from Wakan? Not that I know of. He lived in, he grew, <laughs> in, so. he grew up in Freeport, so he's closer yeah. to Wakan. So maybe that's a little bit closer. But, but Josh, uh, yeah. who's a medical doctor now, I think in Vermont, I don't know if he's as involved as he was, maybe because of the security situation, I'm not sure, but he's done great public health work in Haiti. Yeah. And I did a podcast with him as well. Have you been able to connect at all with our with our classmate, Dr. Josh White, about what he's doing? If not, you guys totally should. I think we've we've talked about it a little bit. I've done I did a gender based violence project in 2013, 2014 in Haiti, and so I think we connected a little bit um, just on what he was doing. Um, you know, after the earthquake, um, I think he was doing quite a lot of work, and that was about the same time that I was there, um, and. So yeah, it's it's great. I think it's wonderful. People just need to find, like you said, this concept of dharma and finding your bliss and connecting, making sure that connects with your own your own kind of skills and um, you know what what can you give the world and and making it happen. You know, I think it's really important. And for Josh, you know, that work in Haiti, I think, really means a lot. And um, it's really wonderful. It is. And, you know, um, so we're going to close up here. And I, I think of one yeah. of my favorite authors, Malcolm, because Michelle's like, oh, my gosh, I've had nine hours of meetings. You've been awesome, Michelle. Thank you so much. But I think of my um, one of my favorite authors, a very popular writer, Malcolm Gladwell. And I remember once mm -hmm. he was interviewed and they said, gosh, how do you um, pick which topics and which people to write about? And I remember I was remember what he said. He said, you know, people don't really realize how amazing and interesting they are on a day-to-day -day basis. You know, maybe Elon Musk or Howard Hughes does. But yeah. I mean, I, I think in terms of, you know, what my classmates at Luther College, what my high school classmates are doing, it's really incredible. And you really stand out as, you know, right along with Jason and Mary doing incredible work where you're mixing your passion, but most importantly, you're connecting it to a need. Um, and there's probably no better um, need than public health as it relates to healthy pregnancies um, and making sure that, you know, with infectious disease, there, there can be no higher calling. So I guess you and Dr. Olserholm are going to have to, maybe you guys should do a joint. Maybe I could get all three of you. If I, he probably, he probably has an agent or something, but if I can get Dr. Olserholm on, okay. If I get him on, he probably won't, he won't accept my invitation. We should he all might, get on. He might. If I say it's a Wakan Yale person, I'm Emory University CDC. So I'll try. 
maybe you can work you work your contacts and then we'll see if we <laughs> right there you go and also um dr Dine, michelle dines um podcast so thank you so much um for being on this episode uh, many blessings and gratitude to you for everything you do and this has been a tremendous privilege to be able to interview michelle Thanks, thank you so Rodney. much yeah have a good night yeah you too take care